Evening everyone, welcome back to another year of sitting. As I was saying when we were meditating, isn't time a funny thing? We call it 2018, New Year. Nothing's changed, just a few words. But it is a very useful, it's just a sort of a, a, a construction time. But it's a very useful one because we all got here at seven at the same time <laughs> together. So it does have a purpose. Um, as a beginning talk this year, um, the subject I chose was um, um, taking refuge in the three treasures. Um, and the three treasures in Buddhism are, are Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. And uh, on reflecting on this, I realised that I, I, I've never given a Dharma talk on this and I tend to avoid it. And when I reflected on it, the reason why I don't talk about it is that it sounds so damn religious. Right? And um, I kind of like, don't like the kind of feel of it, you know, and taking refuge in things. But then looking at it in a different way, <coughs> um, there is an important teaching in it. Uh, and they are not called the three treasures for nothing. But it's, it's important how we see into that and we relate to it and practice with it. But to begin um, with the Buddha um, and to remember that Zen being a school of Buddhism, even though it's kind of iconoclastic, you know, and irreverent, it is nevertheless a school of Buddhism and it goes back to the insight of the Buddha. And you may remember these words that you've read before about when the, the Buddha had his great insight, saw into the great matter, said many different words, but these words are um, uh, house builder, you have now been seen, you shall not build your house again, your rafters have been broken down, your ridge pole is demolished too. Mm -hmm. And the way we can understand those words um, in more modern language or the language that we use is that he clearly saw into the emptiness of self. You know, he clearly saw that there's this kind of thinking mechanism which creates a self-centred dream for itself and it gets caught in it, you know, keeps going through the cycles of, you know, good and bad and better and worse, etc., etc. And he saw through it clearly, right? And when he saw through it clearly in that insight, it, the delusion was gone, right? That's it, no more delusion. And so even in our practice principles, the way that comes through, when we say um, caught in a self-centred dream, only suffering, um, that is our more modern way of saying that we, we are caught up in thinking there's a house builder that builds the self. And we're, we're self-absorbed in the self and what, what the self needs and what it doesn't need and we're preoccupied with it. We, can, we create so much mental reactivity about it in our lives. That's the self-centered dream. So it's important to go back. That, that was the Buddha's realization experience. You know, he woke up. And um, our essential um, aspiration, you know, for practice and doing a, a modern Zen practice is to wake up in the same way and that we can wake up in the same way. You know, some of us might do it to greater depth than others, but the more we practice and the more we the more that becomes clear to us, you know. And that's what 
the burden is released. That's the suffering that's released when we see that so clearly. So that's the Buddha himself, the historical Buddha, um, and all the teachings that flow from that experience um, that we um, aspiring to um, have for ourselves. That, that's at the core of it. With the, the Dharma, um, the word Dharma has many, many different meanings. I think someone told me it's got about 108 meanings. Um, in, in one sense it means that the teachings, like it's the teachings of um, Sarsin, you know, meditation, mindfulness, following the breath, um, ethics, um, various different practices and so on, readings, sutras, all of that makes up the Dharma. But the, the Dharma is also um, in that treasury, also to do with the, the, the teacher, you know, or the teacher of a Sangha, and, um, and the importance of um, developing a relationship with a teacher. Now, that can be a different type of relationship for different people, but it is an important part of practice if you really want to mature in practice to have a relationship with a teacher whether it's with me or it's another teacher or whatever um, but my own experience having had two three really important Zen teachers in my life I couldn't have um, matured in practice without their assistance mm -hmm. and, and so I see it from my own experience as being very important and any, all of my colleagues and friends who are Zen teachers in the Ordinary Mind Zen School, you know, will have the same view of the importance of having had a teacher and the importance of developing a relationship with a teacher. And um, from my experience, you can go so far doing meditation by yourself. Um, and yes, it will have a benefit for you. But I don't see people who really mature in their practice if they don't have developed um, an important um, relationship with a teacher and with a Sangha as well, which I'll come to. Um, now, it's a special kind of affinity. You either have an affinity with a teacher or you don't. Like the teachers I had, I'd had an affinity. Some other teachers I don't, you know, so it's a personal thing. Um, but so, let me talk about some of the the barriers, you know, or difficulties that might come up in that relationship, which one I've experienced as a student and as a teacher too. Um, it requires, so you can sit on your cushion and you can meditate and you can learn to calm your thoughts, etc. And there's a benefit in that. But it's not really until you're in a relationship with a teacher, just like in a sense, like with a therapist, that you're really challenged to open up. You can, Zen books say it all like, you know, over and over again, like you can just sit in the corner and be quiet, but all you'll achieve is being quiet. Right? You won't actually achieve openness, and it requires a kind of a humility and vulnerability, you know, to actually open up, you know, and you open up your heart in the way that you relate to a teacher and that's what the Dyson experience is for. And um, there's various ways that that happens for some, for some people. Some people are um, 
more naturally drawn to an open awareness shikantata practice, well, that's fine, or some to following the breath. But the other important um, uh, Dharma teaching in the Zen practice is Kaan study, um, which, as you know, I teach as well. But like other Zen teachers, I don't, I don't want people to start there. I want people to get grounded in their practice first before they actually move on to Kaan study. But Kaan study, nevertheless, um, is a very, very important part of practice. Now, some people don't do it because they just don't, it's just not their cup of tea. Um, but there's some people who don't do it because they're actually afraid to. Mm-hmm. And it t- takes a certain kind of courage to be given a question or a, you know, a story or something like moo or the sound of a single hand, to give them this weird paradoxical statement that you can't solve with your intellect. And you might have a PhD or an MA or whatever, but it's kind of useless uh-huh, when it comes to, to, to Cohen study. In fact, it probably gets in the way. Um, but it's a very challenging experience to come towards another person who's given you a, a challenge and you can't meet it. You said, no, it rings a bell, no, rings a bell, no, no, no. I went to Aiken Roshi for about a year doing that. No, you know, no. <laughs> <laughs> kind of humbling, you know. But it, the, 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 the very important thing about Koan study, it's not so much the Koan points um, that are presented, but it's the process of it. Because it's a way of engaging with a teacher and it's a kind of vehicle for engaging with the teacher where you have to face all of your um, pride stuckness, humility, mm-hmm. and joy, and laughter, and things like that too. But it's all there in the mix. Mm-hmm. And um, there, are, there are often people who, um, they're, not, they're not engaging that practice, not because simply it's not their cup of tea, it's actually based on fear. It's actually based on the fear of actually putting themselves in that situation. Um, where they're vulnerable. Now, it's not my intention or any Zen teacher's intention to make you vulnerable, but Cohen study is a wonderful vehicle um, to bring out a whole lot of stuff. Um, finally, with Sangha, Sangha is an extremely um, important part of practice as well, and developing not just a relationship with a, a teacher, um, but with um, fellow fellow practitioners that you have an affinity with as well, and it really anchors you to um, to not just practice on your own, but practice with other pe- like-minded people with the same aspirations, the same values, um, who you can do it together with and support one another. So. Being in a Sangha is a matter of supporting others and being supported. It's not, it's not just taking, you know, it's, it's giving and receiving, giving and receiving, giving and receiving. And it's, in a, it's often only in a Sangha that, of, like with a teacher, that you see where you're stuck in certain ways, in the way that you relate to others. And um, if, a, if a Sangha is working well and it's harmonious, it's not necessarily 
a safe place to be. It is in the sense that we're all trying to practice the precepts as well as we can. But it's not necessarily a refuge in a safe place to be. It's where your, your ego reactions will come out. Like you, It's like a mirror held up to you and you see where they come out and you see your patterns that develop. And so it's an opportunity to, to use it as a mirror but also to, to deepen your sense of connection with others. And of course in the, the larger sense, um, the Sangha is not just a, a Zen group in the room, it's to see that if, there's no one's excluded from the Sangha. You know? Even the brush turkeys that live near us are not excluded from the Sangha, even though it has no conception of private property. You know? Everyone's included. So that's a very important part of it as well. <coughs> but we, the words that are used is that we take refuge in Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. And what I want to say finally about it, why I'm often reluctant to talk about it in that way, is that it seems like it's religious in the sense that this is a safe place to be. I mean, taking refuge in a safe place to be, like we, as though we believe, we believe in Buddhism, you know, so we've got a belief and a concept to believe in and the certain things that we do and, and uh, that's just fear-based. Taking refuge in that sense is just simply fear-based, like it is with, it, with many religions. Just something, it's just something to hold on to and to cling to. Right? But the way that it can be a treasure, you know, and, and a benefit, is that we see first into the Buddha's insight that what his essential teaching is, is that everything is empty and impermanent. Not much security in that, is it? <laughs> there's security and insecurity. Mm -hmm. And there's... Uh, and the refuge with a teacher, a teacher's like, like your mummy or daddy, you know, that it's not like that kind of relationship where they're going to tell you what to do or whatever. Um, it's a different type of relationship. It's not based on um, hiding from your fears. It's based on addressing your fears. And the same with the Sangha. You know, it's a way of all, all of us helping each other um, to mature and, and grow in our practice where we look into fear rather than avoiding it. Um, and if that's, if it's done in that spirit, then we all benefit. We, we all grow from the experience together. So, as the, this delusional year of 2018 progresses <laughs> into the future, um, that's important that all of that, those three treasures are at the core of what we do.